0: Welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. Today I'm joined by Heather Ann Thompson, who is a historian and professor at the University of Michigan. We'll be speaking with her about her new book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971, which has come out just this year with (music) Pantheon. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. Today, I'm joined by Heather Ann Thompson, who is a historian and professor at the University of Michigan. We'll be speaking with her about her new book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971, which has come out just this year with Pantheon Books. Hello, Heather. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself, where uh, you're a historian and how you came to be a historian.
1: Well, let's see. I was a uh, kid growing up in Detroit, uh, Michigan in the 80s and kind of grew up trying to figure out what in the world had happened to uh, my city (laughs) and got to college and quickly figured out that I needed to learn a lot more history to kind of figure out why uh, my city had become one of the most uh, racially polarized, certainly the metropolitan area, why it was a place that the rest of the nation seemed to think was so terrible, but yet it was a place where I was uh, feeling very uh, supported and getting a great education. So there was all these disconnects that I really wanted to study. And in addition to that, it was a city with a very important labor history that I wanted to know more about. So when I went to college, I quickly found myself in a history department and wanted to do, at first, an undergraduate honors thesis, which that study really was the the core of what would then become uh, my dissertation and ultimately become my first book.
0: Okay, and where did you go to graduate school? And could you just give us the, you know, very short version of that project?
1: Sure. So um, as an undergraduate, I went to the University of Michigan, um, but for graduate school, I went to Princeton. And uh, my book ended up being uh, really a, a longer and more detailed version of the dissertation I wrote, which was on Detroit in the 1960s and 70s. So that book was called Who's Detroit?, uh, politics, labor, and race in a modern American city, and it really was trying to figure out what had happened to both lead to the Detroit rebellion of 1967, what had led the city to have such a massive demographic shift from an overwhelmingly white population to a majority black population and black political leadership, and what that all had to say to uh, the current historiography, historiographic arguments, which were about urban decline, you know, this kind of preoccupation we had as urban historians to figure out what had happened to our American cities. And I I just sort of felt that there was something important that we needed to study about black politics and particularly the politics of protest if we really wanted to understand that.
0: Okay. And so this book that you just released about the Attica Uprising is is later project. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in Attica and in the uprising in 1971?
1: Well, so it's an interesting, it's a very similar uh, set of uh, questions that brought me to my first book that takes me to Attica, which is that I wanted to better understand this period of the 1960s and 1970s where uh, at some level everybody had uh, this incredible faith that things could be changed. So there were uh, protest movements from north to south and particularly dramatic protest movements in cities. And so I wanted to understand those in my first book in the city of Detroit, but then I became intrigued by this other a uh, very uh, famous protest that I just couldn't find very much information about. It was a protest that had happened in a prison in this time period in upstate New York. And somehow everybody knew the name Attica and knew that something had happened there, or at least that there'd been some important civil rights protest there. But Nobody knew much more than that. And so when I was um, casting about for, you know, how did I want to take this next project, I thought, I want to do a history of that prison rebellion, that prison uh, rebellion as kind of a continuation of my work as a civil rights historian and a historian of black politics. And, um, and then quickly discovered that, uh, I was in way over my head, uh, because in fact, uh, one of the reasons we didn't know very much about Attica was that it was largely a story that the state of New York didn't want us to know. That this was not a story that as a historian you could find in an archive. It wasn't a story that was going to have box, you know, five, boulder six, that we could, you know, open up and, uh, just simply do the hard research that would recount the story for our readers. Um, And that really became a journey for me. It's The reason that book took so long, it was ultimately a 13-year project, because it was really about testing uh, what it meant to be a historian. I had to think about who had uh, a copy or the original of virtually every document that the state of New York was sitting on but wouldn't release. And that research journey took me um, into uh, archival collections that seemingly had nothing to do with Attica, but I figured out that at least tangentially they did. Or um, it took me into people's living rooms of, you know, the survivors. And it took me into lawyers' offices. Perhaps they had depositions or legal documents relating to this event. And that was actually a really uh, important uh, learning experience for me, which is how do we do history when uh, the, the the inheritors of that history uh, ha- are guarding it, you know, don't really want that full story told.
0: Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit more about your research journey a little bit later. But before we do that, just in case people are kind of in that category where they've sort of vaguely heard of Vatican, but they don't quite know what happened, I thought it might be helpful if you could just give us a, sh- a little summary of what did happen at Attica and why it's so important.
1: Let's say, well, that's a great uh, thing to remind me to do, because it's funny when you've worked on something for this long. You Now, now you assume everybody. Right. <laughs> everybody uh, was on the journey with you. Um, no, it was uh, it was an event that happens in 1971 in an upstate New York prison, really in this tiny town called Attica, uh, but it had a maximum security facility really jammed with 2,400 men, mostly black and brown men from uh, the lower part of the state, from New York City, but also from other cities like Baltimore, I mean, sorry, Baltimore, like Brooklyn and Rochester, and um, this was a place that had terrible uh, conditions for those who were confined there. Um, these men were being fed on 63 cents a day. They, were, um, they had terrible medical care. They were denied visitation with their children. Um, there was all kinds of really uh, inhumane treatment that went beyond simply serving a sentence and these men had tried to work through the system to get these concerns addressed. They wrote to their state senator, they tried to talk to the commissioner of corrections, but they were also aware that um you know this was the the tail end of the 60s. This was still the rebellious 70s and they were aware that um, that people needed to hear them one way or the other. And so when that did not merit any change, when, when all of the working through the system got them nothing, eventually they will have a very dramatic takeover of the prison that uh, really just captures the nation's attention, actually the world's attention, because the first thing they do is they ask um, the media to come in. Um, You know, they understood that prisons are these closed institutions and that if they needed to... if they hoped to have any uh, any hearing with the state, they were going to have to get the public on their side as well, you know, to, to make the public understand what conditions were like in prisons. So the media came in, um, they invited high profile observers to come in to help them negotiate with the state and they had taken guards hostage. So they had a, a bargaining chip with the state um, hoping that uh, if they protected the hostages and kept them safe, that the state would, in fact, uh, bargain in good faith and uh, improve these sort of really rudimentary <laughs> conditions. Um, the demands were simple. They were straightforward. Um, and so the world watches for four days as this civil and human rights protest goes on behind bars, Um But it becomes infamous. The reason why it becomes a story that the state doesn't want to talk about later on is that the state of New York, and specifically the governor at the time, uh, made the decision against all uh, advisors on the ground that he was going to retake the prison with deadly force. And what then happens is a brutal, brutal uh, massacre. It's 39 prisoners and hostages that are killed, uh, uh, 128 men in total that are shot very severely, some of them, you know, multiple bullet wounds. Um, And uh, and it was such carnage, and then there's torture that goes on for days and weeks after that, that the state of New York then spends the next really 40 years trying to... um, make it go away, um, to make sure, for example, that no law enforcement officer will ever be held accountable. Um and I thought that this was a story that needed to be told for two reasons. One, because it was this very dramatic episode where thirteen hundred men with very little power, uh, stand together as one to demand basic human rights. And that, you know, that was a, a worthwhile civil rights story to understand. But I quickly became persuaded that it was actually um, a story that we needed to know because the legacy of it, the way that the state had handled it, would have long-term reverberations for the criminal justice system in this country for the next 40 years.
0: Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I think is really great about your book is that you have really gotten to know a lot of the people who are involved in this uprising and can tell really – Uh, poignant and sometimes horrific stories about their experiences, and so I thought it might be helpful if you might be able to tell us, maybe just pick one person or one story, or if you prefer to speak in general, that's fine, too, of what the conditions were like that really lead these men to a point where they're willing to and feel that they really have to embark on an uprising like this.
1: Well, I think that the, you're you're right that the book follows um, some people more closely than others. Um, some of the prisoners in particular, some of the guards in particular, as well as a lot of the state actors. I feel like, you know, over the course of this book, you get to know them on a quite personal level. But to really, uh, I think, get folks to understand what the conditions were, um, you have to think about it, you know, from a, a much more general Standpoint. Um, you had, you know, you had young guys in there. For example, um, one of the guys you hear about early on. I mean, he's there because he's seventeen years old. He is a, 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 a Spanish-speaking prisoner who has polio, and he can't. You know, he's in constant pain, but there's no Spanish-speaking guard. And so when he can't work because he's in such pain, they just throw him in his cell and basically put him in there for days and days as a form of punishment. Um, he can't communicate with the doctors. And even if he could, you quickly learn that the two doctors at Attica are these really, you know, barbaric people. They, they could care less about the conditions that these uh, men are facing, and they really uh, uh, choose not to treat them, not to make them better. And so that's just kind of a sampling. But in addition, of course, you've got conditions that are bad for the guards, ironically. This is one of the things that's interesting about the book. You quickly find out that over the course of the next 40 years, guards and prisoners alike uh, are fighting for justice because the guards are terrified. This this prison is bursting at the seam. They're trying to tell prison management that um, they need help. They need better training. Um, they they need the conditions to improve for prisoners because the prisoners are so miserable. It makes it unsafe for everybody. And so it was really, uh, as one of the chapters is titled, it was really a tinderbox waiting to explode. And prison management in the state of New York had been given Multiple, multiple uh, indications that um, that it you know that they needed to do something to improve things at a very basic level, and they could have probably avoided this entire eruption.
0: So then, when this eruption happens, and there were other prisons in the country during this period of time who had um, pushback from prisoners because of conditions, and they came, they led to different outcomes. So this uprising occurs, and then why does the governor and why does the state of New York make this decision to retake the prison by force, given that the world is watching?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, when, you're, when you're going page by page, uh, it is kind of extraordinary when you see that um, not only is the whole world watching this, but indeed people whom the governor has appointed to be on the observers committee are, you know, are also saying to him, look, you know, you you really need to keep negotiating because um, one look outside of the prison where incidentally, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of state troopers are amassing and they're angry and they've had no sleep for days and they've been passing out weapons without writing down serial numbers of these weapons. Um, anyone could see that it was a disaster. And so the question of why he embarks upon this forcible retaking, particularly deploying such angry uh, men, is is really uh, something that I had to work through closely. And I think that the answer is complicated. the The short answer is that Nelson Rockefeller, the governor, had a reputation in New York as being a very liberal Republican, but his party had moved substantially rightward. and Attica was his uh, opportunity to show the Republican Party that he was ready to be president too, which of course is something he had desperately wanted to be uh, election after election. Uh, this was going to give him his uh, tough on crime credentials. So he was, you know, deeply ambitious. He was also a diehard cold warrior. He saw this as this communist. Uh, black power communist conspiracy that it was his obligation to put down. Uh, He just couldn't see past that lens. Um, And he was being egged on, uh, indeed, um, supported by the Nixon administration, who saw the world very much as Rockefeller did in that moment. Um, but, But probably the answer is only really understood if you understand that this is the tail end of a series of really powerful civil rights protests that have happened in cities across the nation and in prisons across the nation, and certainly for those in power who were threatened by um, that upsurge, who were threatened by what a shift in power might really look like, this was an opportunity to clamp down, and they, they took it, even if it meant, which it did, that they were going to uh, wound and kill their own state employees, in this case, the hostages. Mm
0: -hmm. So I have a couple of questions kind of leading off from that, but one is thinking about, if if we're thinking about the reaction of the governor and of the state, really in this context of broader civil rights movements uh, and what's going on in terms of law and order and kind of um, shifting political ideas taking place in this broader United States. How much do we think about the uprising as being part of a broader movement across the United States? And how much do we think of it as being about the very specific conditions taking place in Attica?
1: Well, I try to sort that out in the book. I think that on the one hand, this is uh, very much specific to Attica. Of course, the details of why the prison erupts on that specific day of September 9th, 1971, and why uh, the, the rebellion takes the form that it does. Um, those are very specific to that prison and to a series of events that I document that had preceded that particular day and that particular uprising. But the truth is, as a historian of this period, you quickly understand that it is part of this broader context. These men had Uh, come from the streets of New York where there'd already been um, a serious problem with racial discrimination, for example, in jobs and in schools and in dealing with the police. And there had already been problems with living conditions and inadequate food. And and so much of this had already been uh, protested on the outside. And so these guys inside were already reading um, civil rights leaders who had been writing about this issue, and they were talking about these issues, and they were uh, eager to uh, make things more just and more egalitarian in the prison just as they had been in their communities. So in that sense, Attica is part of a much broader moment uh, of social change and social possibility, which is, of course, exactly why I had initially come to it. I mean, I came to it because very notably, there was an episode uh, in the Civil Rights series, Eyes on the Prize, that was about Attica. There was a half an hour film segment on Attica. And um, so that's clearly the way people at the time conceptualized Attica, and certainly the way that I came to it. Uh, But then I also understood it as very much about prisons and very much about that world too.
0: So then the other direction to go from there and question that I had is what are the consequences of this uprising? You've already hinted at those a little bit, but what happens after this?
1: Well, so um, readers of the book might be surprised to see that the the first part of the book is about the actual prison rebellion. And that's what I thought the whole book was going to be about. That is to say those four days of negotiations with the state and then the horrendous fifth day when the state retakes the prison. But the book is actually about uh, much more, in fact, two-thirds of the book is about the subsequent 40 years. Uh, And that's because um, how Attica plays out is going to have a tremendous impact on the nation. One that I'm not sure I fully appreciated at all until I got into the research So for starters, the state of New York, even though its law enforcement officers have killed all these people in Attica and wounded so many, uh, the state of New York steps out in front of the prison and says something entirely different happened. It says that the prisoners have killed the hostages and that worse, uh, one of them has castrated a hostage. And that story goes out on the front page of every newspaper in the country, and by the way, also internationally and um and and that has this incalculable effect on the nation because you know we'd already started a war on crime in 1965 but but this was Attica becomes this kind of emotional uh driver for it, it, it you know people who had been sympathetic to prison reform when they hear these stories coming out of Attica and they see the carnage and they believe that it's all about the prisoners Um, it hardens people, uh, deeply and it, and it sours them on this idea that prisoners are people. So, on the one hand, this kind of touches off these, this punitive moment. And it only gets fueled, and again, um, for multiple reasons, but still because of Attica, because after telling those lies of Attica, then the state of New York only prosecutes prisoners for the riot and what had happened during the riot. So law enforcement, the ones who should have been paraded in front of the nightly news in handcuffs or sitting before a jury, um, is nowhere. And the nation watches over the next five, six years as the prisoners, one by one, 62 of them are indicted for riot-related crimes at Attica. And what I argue is that... Um, the sum total of this is to to really move us precipitously very emotionally uh in a punitive direction. Um, we become a country that locks up more people than any other country on the globe and I argue that you can't really see that as natural or inevitable. You have to understand that it's the product of these historical events. Attica is one of them. There are others I talk about. I mean, Kent State wounded me. But events when um, the state is actually the one committing the violence and the citizens, the protesting citizens are the victims. But the way that it's spun is uh, deeply important for the way politics will then uh, transform and unfold over the next four decades. The book is really about that story. It's about the state's efforts to cover up. Um, and really, as readers will see, I mean, I was shocked myself. I'm hardly a conspiracy theorist. And it, it becomes clear that this is really a cover up at the highest level, the governor, the state police. Uh, it goes all the way into the White House. And um and it's also a story though about the, the fighting back. I mean all those people in that prison, uh, the prisoners actually and the hostages, they don't uh they don't accept this willingly. This is a story about state cover up and a rightward turn of the nation, but it's also a story of uh the prisoners always being determined to get their story out one way or the other. And you know, so it's kind of a David and Goliath story uh, at, at the end of the day.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do they fight back?
1: Well, um, for starters, even though they're the only the prisoners are the only ones indicted, um, the book chronicles for multiple chapters uh, one of the most extraordinary uh, defense efforts in the 20th century—a legal defense effort uh, really up there with the Scottsboro Boys trials. Um, Young lawyers and law students descend on upstate New York to make sure that all of these indicted Attica brothers have a lawyer to make sure that they will have um, solid representation uh, against the state. I mean, for for example, they know that one of the reasons the state's been able to indict so many prisoners is that it actually, and this this is extraordinary, they actually use the same state troopers that retook the prison with guns and allow them to investigate the Attica investigation, to, to get the evidence together to indict these prisoners. And the lawyers know this. They know that these guys are being railroaded. So um, they show up, and the prisoners together with their lawyers embark on this you know really interesting and important uh, legal defense effort. Like I said, it's up there with the Scottsboro Boys or the NAACP legal defense efforts in the South um, you know, a decade earlier. And so that's part of the way they fight back. They also uh fight back through the civil court system. As soon as they dispense with the criminal cases uh, very, very effectively, um, they take the state of New York uh and specific people in the prison system into federal court and uh launch a class action civil rights suit against against them. And that's another whole part of the book that ultimately will allow them to get a settlement from the state of New York. Hardly justice, but at least it allowed them to tell their stories on the record. Um, And then meanwhile, the hostages, remember, who have also been killed by their own state employer, um, uh, have uh, their own very sometimes parallel fight, sometimes at odds fight with the prisoners to be heard. Um, their story is slightly different. On the one hand, they too were killed and wounded at Attica. But in addition to that, they were swindled by the state of New York. Um, my research indicates that they uh, literally were approached by state Uh, employees right after, um, I mean, as they're burying their husbands, as widows are burying their husbands and as surviving hostages are mending in the hospital, and they are um, given these meager checks, told to, you know, go cash them, buy some groceries, take care of yourself, we're here for you, Um, and what they weren't told was that if they cashed those checks, they were, quote-unquote, electing a remedy, which meant that they would be statutorily unable to sue their employers for the death and for the injury and for the trauma. And so they have a 40-year fight to get restitution from the state um, and for that swindle. So it's it's really, this book is about cover-up and it's about power at the highest levels doing diabolical things, but it's also about these ordinary people on the ground who for 40 years never give up.
0: Yeah, and there's some really extraordinary stories that you tell about particular cases in narrating that journey, for sure. Um, Could you talk just a little bit about then do things actually change in the prison at all?
1: Well, this is, of course, one of the greatest ironies about the Attica story, and it was one that, again, as a historian, I had to kind of sort it out. Um, it, it was really hard to, to nail this down, even in my own mind, what was going on. Because on the one hand, right after Attica, and as a result of their protest, there are some pretty important uh, improvements uh, and changes that come to the New York prison system. And indeed, it's one of the reasons why, uh, comparatively speaking, and again, this is only comparatively speaking, um, New York does have some more liberal uh, prison rules compared to a lot of other states. And I think a lot of folks in the system would tell you it goes back to Attica. But um, so things like, you know, more relaxed visitation rules, better parole rules, um, better training for guards and so forth. But at the end of the day, um, I, I I really do come down to say that the, the backlash overtakes all of that. That that at the end of the day the consequences of having taken this prison so brutally and the consequences of having literally spun a narrative about Attica for the subsequent twenty at least years that um that that put it all on prisoner brutality and nothing on the state, that that, that will serve to Erode ninety percent of those um, those gains, and indeed, recently there's been a couple of uh, pieces in the New York Times about the book. And one of the most interesting to me was done uh, by a reporter, Tom Robbins, who actually compared, uh, looked at some of those very specific improvements after the rebellion, and looked at them today, and sort of and, and pretty much concluded that they've all been rolled back. So, so on the one hand, it had. An important effect on prison reform, on the other hand, um, it was swindled right out from under them because of these because of this backlash because of the lies told.
0: This may be asking too much in some ways because I know you're of course focused on on Attica and the prison systems are generally state run but how does this how were the events in Attica viewed by Correctional facilities and prison systems in other states. Is there a broader ripple effect that's taking place uh, as a result, oh, whether it be a crackdown <laughs> or a reform ripple effect? Well, I
1: think it's both. I think, again, in those initial months after Attica, I think there's a great fear. Um, there's a lot of protests that happen in support of the Attica brothers, especially after that brutal, brutal retaking and I think, you know, prison officials are nervous, and certainly guards unions are so afraid of this that they begin demanding, uh, you know, meetings with their union officials and with prison administrations to uh, increase safety on the job for them. So, yeah, it, everyone was aware of Attica. Some prison administrations dealt with that with reform. But overwhelmingly, the response, again, in the long run, is to clamp down even harder. You know, readers might be interested to know that that today's super max prisons actually date to that moment after Attica when the corrections commissioner is calling for something that he calls a maxi-maxi prison. And he imagines it to be this place where all the militant troublemakers are going to be put and um, separated from the general population. Well, he doesn't quite get that, but it shows you, I mean, it just paves the way for what is going to be uh, a whole era of confinement and these supermax prisons that quote-unquote separate the troublemakers, although by by this time the state has done such an effective job of breaking up political organizations in the prison that really what it's dealing with after that is gangs. Um, but it's a very interesting trajectory from Attica uh, up to the present day for sure. Mm
0: -hmm. So I know, of course, this is we live in a current moment where prisons are back in the news and um, policing is back in the news and the justice system is in the news in a way that it wasn't for a very long period of time. Um, So of course the question that many people are interested in is how, what your book has to say about the present you've already talked a little bit about what it has to say about how we got here um but Mm -hmm. what does it have to say both about how we got here and where we go from here and what kinds of reform and change would make a lot of sense for prisoners for human rights and also for correctional facilities and guards themselves
1: yeah i'm I'm so glad that that you raised this because um you know one of the greatest ironies for me was this book. I was intending to finish it at least ten years ago, and because of this research journey, I was unable to do that, and it took me much longer to finish than I had hoped. But as a result of that, it meant that the book was coming out quite fortuitously um in this moment that you describe when um you know all of a sudden. Uh, literally the week the book comes out, prisons across the nation are uh, erupting again and doing so very, very expressly uh in the name of Attica, you know, calling for prison strikes on September 9th in commemoration of Attica, for example. And so um in a completely unplanned fashion, the book uh, came out right in the moment when we are, in some key respects, uh, living with the fruits of the book, <laughs> uh, or, or really the terrible fruit of the book, which is mass incarceration and the terrible conditions that we now have in prisons. And so, um, I think the book not only, as you say, tries to help us understand how we got here, but I think it has a great deal to say about, um, what, what we need to do now in this moment. And I try as a historian, Um, I don't just write history books, I also try to do a lot of popular pieces on this as well. Uh, By popular, I mean, you know, contemporary news stories about what does Attica tell us about the present day, and frankly, what it tells us is that, um, you know, when you confine human beings for these extended, extended period of time, and you put them which in in quite literally in cages, I mean, we have to be very honest about what prisons are and what they actually do. And then in addition to that, um, you know, after removing them from family and oftentimes from any human touch or contact because of so much time people are spending in their cells and in solitary, um, Depriving them of food. I mean, Michigan prisoners right now being, you know, fed maggot-filled food and and denying them medical care and um, you know and, and we we now know from Attica that when you treat human beings that way, that uh, they will eventually demand to be treated as human, and that there will be eruptions. And so then Attica shows us that it's incredibly important that we uh, don't respond to those protests with just more repression. Um, Because ironically, even though you could read the Attica story and say, well, look, it was very effective. They clamped down on it. And for the next 40 years, you don't hear a peep out of prison. But of course, that's not really true, right? I mean, we in fact have had terrible stories coming out of prisons for 40 years. And the only difference now is that they've culminated in more of a a group protest. And so the lesson of that repression is that we didn't solve anything. And indeed we made it worse. Prisons today are worse than they were in 1971. And that's hard for people to get their head around. They read my book and they're horrified. I mean, journalists who've read this will say, wow, I just, I can't believe how terrible those conditions are. And, and I point out to them, well, Attica is worse today. You know, Attica is a, is a terrible place today. And most people are doing more time in solitary today and have worse conditions today. So the lesson is we have to heed heed the words of those who are in the inside trying to tell us what they need. They're not saying they want to get out. <laughs> They're not saying... They want something outlandish um you know its is about treating them as human beings on the inside, and I think Attica has myriad lessons in there about the importance of doing just that for our public safety the other thing and and this is to go on a little bit, but it you may policing um the other really important uh thing that comes out of the Attica story is that you know. Law enforcement kills 39 men at Attica and wounds 128 others, and not one member of law enforcement ever stands trial for that. And in many of these cases, as my book shows, it's unqualified murder. It is not, it is not self-defense. It is not... Um, there, there, there's no gray area in some of these cases about what happened, in many of these cases about what happened. And so when readers see that, and they see how did that happen? How were these guys protected? And they see, for example, that um, the head of the state police is doing everything it can to make these lower-level troopers who've committed these heinous acts to disappear. Um, that they help uh, rip up any paper that has serial numbers of weapons on it. That they splice film so that you can't see who's shooting, that they remove photographs, that they doctor photographs, that they alter trooper statements, and then that it's not just the troopers that are doing this or their bosses, but that the governor of the state of New York is inviting the troopers and the attorney general, and they're all sitting around Rockefeller's pool house getting their story straight. And then you, it gives us, it it humbles us when we look at today's situation. And if we look at a city like, um, you know, Chicago and Laquan McDonald or someone who has been killed by the police and there is no charges brought, uh, Attica's very instructive about why that might be the case. And we look at Baltimore where we had members of law enforcement that were indicted, but they're not convicted Attica is very instructive. Attica should make us very, very skeptical of our grand jury system. You learn a lot about the grand jury in this book and make us very skeptical about the police investigating themselves and prosecutors who normally have to work with police uh, on a daily basis, then being asked to uh, indict them for a crime. So I think Attica is much more presently relevant than I had ever imagined it would be.
0: hmm So one of the things that the prisoners were trying to do, as you've already mentioned, is get the media in there to kind of publicize their conditions. And so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about whether you see um, anything having changed there, uh, what kind of the role of shining light on these conditions today right i suspect that probably many people as you just said would be surprised to hear attica conditions are worse today than they were then right what's well i think
1: that's that i I mean i think that you, you know you're calling attention to these these lessons that history teaches us and in particular what the attica's history what attica's history teaches us and the other one as you just say is it's about the media um You know, the the Attica brothers were incredibly savvy. They understood that without the media there, um, that they were going to be, uh, they were going to be uh, probably uh, taken over much sooner than they were, that they would never have had the opportunity to negotiate. And more importantly, that the American public would have no idea what their, uh, needs were right. What conditions were really like? In fact, many of the observers that come in, and including Tom Wicker of the New York Times, is stunned. I mean, he just—you know—he meets a guy who's been locked up for three decades for a very minor infraction, and he just—he can't get his head around it, right? Because he's—he's he's finally seeing. I mean, he'd always imagined that this is a bunch of murderers, rapists, and thieves, as he says, and then he meets the 21 year old in Attica who's there because he was driving without a license and he had violated parole, right? Or the other 21 year old who's there because he cut the neighbor's, uh, convertible top, um, and was there on a parole violation. So, so media is critically important because it allows the public and these are public institutions to see what's happening on the inside. Since Attica, uh, The media's ability to know what's happening in prisons has completely shut down. You can talk to any reporter from the New York Times to a blog and they will tell you that um, they can't get information from inside of prisons. And the impact of that is devastating Um, because there's another lesson here from Attica with regard to the media, which is that right after Attica, when the state said that the prisoners had killed the hostages... Because the media could not get into the prison then to see what had happened, they took the state's word for it. And so then the media becomes responsible, as I mentioned, for disseminating this horrific lie about why there had been so much carnage inside of that prison and put it on the prisoners when in fact it was on law enforcement. So today, not only can the media not get inside these prisons that have been striking and protesting, But almost worse, they're only getting their information from the Departments of Corrections. And so the Departments of Corrections have been spinning what's going on inside, right? For example, saying that it's not a protest, that it's gang violence. That's a classic example of what's happening today. Well, whether it's gang violence or a protest, the only way that anybody on the outside is going to understand it or really know is if somebody other than the people in charge have an eye on it.
0: And so on that note, how did you manage to get all of this information, right? Um, your book talks a little bit about your research journey, and you've talked a little bit here today as well, that it was a particular challenge that the state of New York didn't want you writing about this either. So how did you go about making this story come to life?
1: Well, that was a, a mix of, uh, I think, intuitiveness <laughs> that mm-hmm. all historians Uh, understand very well, uh, but also just sheer luck. Um, I I had stick-to-itiveness because I kept asking the questions, who had the records, excuse me, um, who had the copy, who had the record, who might have something that the state of New York didn't want me to see. But at the end of the day, that still didn't get me the most important documents, which would have indicated to me who the perpetrators were. Excuse me. (laughs) All right, we're gonna have to edit that out. Yeah, we can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> and something in this room I'm allergic to. I'm in Boston for a um book uh book event tonight and this, there's something in this hotel room I've been sneezing since I got in here. Oh no. Um, <laughs> anyway, um yeah, so despite all of the um really important information that survivors gave me, lawyers gave me, and even some uh archival collections, um peripherally related to Attica gave me, I couldn't find out what was happening that had, prote- you know, how had these members of law enforcement been so protected? And more importantly, who were the perpetrators? How, uh, you know, who had killed this these people in the prison and, and who had protected them? I mean, I really wanted, as a historian, if I was going to do this comprehensive history, I wanted to know the who and I wanted to know the why and I wanted to know the how. And, um, I had this extraordinarily lucky break, which is that I had been calling every small town, uh, county uh, office and courthouse to find out if anyone had any of the original Attica records from some of the trials. And one day, uh, had a call from a response from, uh, the Erie County Courthouse, and it turned out there had been some. Uh, Attica documents there probably had just been moved there due to some water damage somewhere else. I now, looking back on it, think that they were probably um, came out of the chambers of one of the key Attica judges, um, just given what was in there. And, you know, the the clerk, the low-level clerk, had no idea the importance of these documents, and so allowed me to come in. And in some respects, that was just a game-changer for the book, because um, in that was grand jury testimony, investigative files, and some of the most important smoking gun documents in terms of telling me who specifically uh, the state of New York had evidence against as, uh, as shooters, um, maybe as uh, potential murderers. In law enforcement, Um, I had, there was ballistics evidence in there, there was depositions, there was investigative notes, grand jury testimony, as I said, and some of these whistleblowing documents from inside of the Attica investigation. So that moment was one that every historian, um, uh, you know, (laughs) we lay awake at night and hope Mm -hmm. for that. Um, It was, it was really quite extraordinary. But again, to kind of really drive home the point about how important it is that um, that that we think hard about records and we think about um, trying to get them, even if they're not easily accessible to us in a archive. Um, had I not found those, um, in some very key respects, this entire story would only be half told. Um, The ability to find those records was the ability to shine more light on that story than had been shown in 40 years. And I I shudder when I think that now those records, they're gone. Um, You know, essentially someone got tipped off that they were there and they have all disappeared. And I am very grateful that I took scans and, you know, got copies of the most important of these Mm But it's a very humbling thing to realize that some of our most important events in the 20th century um, we won't know the half of what actually happened unless we have lucky breaks or unless we um, just keep keep at it <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and somehow uh, it, you know somehow find it some other way than we are meant to because, um most of our traditional archives only have in them what those with power felt was okay for us to see to put it
0: quite bluntly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then did you were you able to get access to any um to the prison to prisoners did you find just doors closing at every every turn? Well,
1: I did ultimately get inside of Attica, and um I actually was even able to see records um that were in three rubber made tubs that had been saved in the prison offices um related to uh the uprising and um but even there, I mean it was just such a it's such a interesting um, moment in terms of historical research because that access, even that access was so dependent in this case uh, on um, certainly on white privilege as uh, being a white scholar and probably also on some weird, weirdly twisted uh, gender um, uh, issue because I'm female. Um, The former, I got into Attica because a guard um, had decided that I would be okay to come in and he wanted to show me around. This was the son of one of the slain hostages. And, um, you know, I think that the very facts that he saw me as someone trustworthy to tell his story had very much to do with my positionality as a white scholar. Um, and, you know, I hadn't gotten in before that. The state of New York had absolutely denied every request that I made to get in. Um, and that was critical. I mean, for me to see the inside of the prison was what allowed me, um, I think, to to really tell to to at least to be able to try to bring the reader in with me, right? to to describe it in such a way that, that um, that people could feel what those guys in the yard felt. And I needed to be in there myself to even know what that place looked like, to, to feel it myself. Um, the other thing, though, was the gender component, because um, the person who let me see the, the documents, um, I'm pretty sure was seeing me as this, um, you know, little girl doing a... Um, report. I don't know. I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but I think that um, there was a there was a bit of, uh, there's a patronizing quality to it. So, you know, why not let me look at some of this stuff? And, you know, I've had to think a lot about that. I've had to think a lot about my positionality as a historian in doing this book, um, for good or ill. Um, you know, those are some examples of where it benefited the story. I think there's other ways in which um, it was you know, being a white scholar it was it had other challenges trying to tell uh, uh the story of African American and Puerto Rican struggle in a way that um, that those actors felt was um, was uh, capt- fully captured their experience so it's just interesting i mean it was it, I've never in all the those the, the, the books I've written and the articles I've written doing this book was certainly the most interesting to me methodologically for all those reasons.
0: And I have one last method question, um, which is, you know, your book talks about some very intense violence and some very, um, you know, disturbing and hard to read stories. And I can only imagine hard to write stories. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, I write about violence as well. And sometimes it's hard where the line is between, as someone once described it to me, leaning into Describing the violence to make sure that the actual events are portrayed to readers, but also not uh, sort of becoming sensationalized. And how did you both deal with reading about this and writing about this and also figure out where that line was for you?
1: Well, I, I, again, appreciate this question so much because um, I, uh, you know, as you say, that's the hardest those sections are the hardest to read in the book. Two two chapters in particular, one is called No Mercy and the other one is called And the Beat Goes On. But also even at the end of the book during the civil trial when these guys are recounting what they went through. And um, I have to say that it's not just difficult to read. It, it was indeed very difficult to write because I, at every page, I, I, I struggled between wanting to fully convey to the reader how horrific this was, but frankly not to anesthetize the reader to it because one of the things or, or to make it gratuitous, like there is a way you use the word sensationalize, I would say, or to make it almost pornographic, you know, there's a way in which it's just too, it's too terrible in its telling to, to, to be anything other than overwhelming and um, like you need to turn your gaze away. But at the same time, uh, one way that people deal with that is to just tune out, right? To to become hardened to it. So that balancing act between making sure people understand how terrible it was, but not overwhelming them with it or not minimizing it with sensationalism or making it Uh, you know, that took just draft after draft after draft. <laughs> draft and, and of course, every time that I had to read it, I would just have to stop sometimes. I couldn't, you know, even to this day, I I, I sometimes will do, I mean, I oftentimes now do readings for the public and, um, and I will be reading certain things and not even some of those most, uh, violent passages, but some of the most poignant passages. And I find myself, um, you know, I find myself taken in by it even now. And it's not so much about good writing. It's about letting the survivors tell their stories, you know, Mm -hmm. letting them speak, I guess. And for me, that was a real blessing because these prisoners and hostages had spent so many years and were so determined to tell their stories that oftentimes I was just able to let them speak.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. It's a wonderful book, and I really encourage people to to get it and read it and read some of those passages. Um, but now that you've finished uh, this long project, are you working on anything now, or do you have anything queued up for next?
1: Well, I, I do, um, and I'm, I'm sure that there'll this will morph as well. I mean, one of the things that I, a project I'm working on is um, that is very related to Attica is that there was a series of New York jail riots that happened right before Attica that I have a lot of research done on already. And I want to do a separate book on that because I think it's a way to really look at um, this question of policing urban spaces and um, the carceral state and jails. And so that will be a shorter book, but one in which, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in doing because I think, Uh, To your question about how does this stuff resonate today, I'm particularly interested in in how this carceral apparatus that becomes so big in America actually begins in the communities, right? Begins with policing and begins with stop and frisk and begins with people pouring into the jails in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. So that book uh, will be called Echoes from the Tombs because the tombs was one of the most Uh, largest New York city jails that erupts in 1970. Um, but the other project is a much more cerebral project I'm working on, which is about, um, really trying to think about how we build, uh, how the ways in which the American carceral state is actually fundamental to the broader state building project after world war two, um, what? How is it that we build the state after World War II in the shadow of um, the Second World War, um, facing uh, serious anti-communism and also a civil rights eruption? And how, through surveillance and the the, the carceral apparatus of surveillance, do we build the American state and then make it uh, for there ever after? Uh, make the legitimacy of the American state dependent on a robust carceral state and vice versa. So for that project, I'm really interested in the much sort of the wedding of uh, social history and how surveillance works in real time, in real organizations on the ground to help state maintain legitimacy, but wet it with political theory about state building and also political history about, um, how these institutions actually, uh, developed as mutually enforcing, um, over the course of the post-war period. So a very, very different project and, um, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, probably will do them in tandem because i because i do very much like the storytelling part of history too and i suspect that one will be much more <laughs> much more theoretical than mm-hmm. than storytelling. All
0: right, well those both sound like wonderful projects. Hopefully you'll come back and tell us about those when uh when they're done. And well, thank, thank
1: you so much. What a great treat to talk, to talk history and, and, uh, and certainly the Attica book, if, if, for no other reason to read it, I always love when historians read it because we can talk about the research challenges, that in itself. In some I laugh sometimes because I feel like there's, there should be a book about doing the book.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well,
1: thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.